Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Anne Mossick from the Sydney Opera House. Welcome to our session this afternoon with Tim Harford um, on why we need to make more mistakes. Um, Tim is a senior columnist with the Financial Times. He's the author of the very popular um, series uh, in the newspaper, but also the book, The Undercover Economist. Um, his other books include The Logic of Life, Dear Undercover Economist, and Adapt, a wonderful book, Why Success Always Starts with Failure, which is uh, the material from which his talk today will come. Tim is uh, a really interesting speaker for us to have here. He's somebody who comes to terms with big data on our behalf, so unravels a lot of very complex information to draw out a whole set of very interesting ideas um, and, and, and join the dots in a way that I think in, in this is very important. Why I really wanted to have him speak in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas is because he's a brilliant speaker and, and has that ability to make the complex seem um, uh, so intelligible and so interesting. But also um, because his book is one of those things where you think, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, learn from mistakes. That's a kind of a sensible what's dangerous about that. But it's an incredibly subversive book, I think, because it really forces us to make sense to change the way we look at organisations, the way we look at leadership, the way we think about how we fund research, all kinds of really quite radical things. So I'm looking forward to it. Tim Harford. I was going to begin with a sporting analogy, uh, and somebody's told me there aren't any sports fans in the building. <laughs> so... I thought I'd take advantage of the unusually sophisticated nature of the audience today by talking about ballet. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's no ordinary ballet. Uh, the ballet I want to talk about was conceived by a, 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 an intelligent, provocative, modernist, avant-garde choreographer by the name of Twyla Tharp. And she'd worked with everybody. She'd worked with David Byrne, she'd worked with Philip Glass, Milos Forman, the director of uh, Amadeus. She worked with Mikhail Baryshnikov. Um, and at the peak of her career in her early 60s, when she'd won almost every award going, she decided she wanted to make a ballet that was also a contemporary dance, there was also a rock concert, there was also a musical, there was also based on the songs of Billy Joel, and a piano man and uh, uptown girl, that kind of thing. And um, she got permission from Billy Joel. Billy Joel was very hands-off. He said, look, if you get in Twyla's way, you die. So he handed over his songs and she got to work, writing the story, directing, producing, choreographing everything. And the show was called Moving Out. It was a real experiment. It was quite brave. And it premiered on the 19th of July, 2002, at the Schubert Theatre in Chicago. And it really, really stank. <laughs> the reviews came out. Uh, one of them called it uh, pile-driving, uh, almost unbelievably naive. Another said it was crazily uneven. Another said some of the scenes are as silly as anything you will see in Reefer Madness. Uh, one, one reviewer said there's one scene that leaves half the audience turning to the other half and going, what just happened? Who just died? Huh? Now, normally, when a show premieres in Chicago, it, it's it's bound for Broadway. It's going to go to New York. But the idea is to show it in Chicago or Boston or Philadelphia, work out a few of the kinks, uh, you know, iron out the, the little glitches. And there's a sort of gentleman's agreement that what happens in Chicago stays in Chicago. The Chicago reviews are published locally. They don't go to New York. When the play or the musical arrives on Broadway, that is when the New York press will deal with it, and that is the way that things are done. But in this case, the show was so bad, the reviews were so delicious, and Billy Joel, who's a New York boy, was so famous that they just couldn't resist 
And one of the most critical reviews from the Chicago Tribune was reprinted in the New York newspaper Newsday. And now every critic in New York knew that this giant turkey was about to fly its way down to Broadway. And they were really looking forward to carving a few slices off. And this entire mess landed in Twyla Tharp's lap. She'd created the project, she directed the project, choreographed the project. It was all her fault. We'll come back to Twyla Tharp later. I want to persuade you today that you, that I, everybody, should make more mistakes, should try deliberately to put ourselves in the position that Twyla Tharp found herself in. Career-threatening mistakes, humiliating mistakes, the kind of mistakes that make you just want to curl up into a little ball and you know, chew on your knuckles. That we need to do this to ourselves. Actually, this is the only way to be human, and this is the only way to solve the problems that we face. And let me begin my argument by talking about a toaster. Let's have the toaster. Isn't it beautiful? This toaster cost £3.94 at a British uh, retail store. That's about $6.10. In other words, you can have this toaster for an hour's badly paid work. And it will work perfectly well, it looks nice, and it will make you toast. But a, a London-based design student called Thomas Thwaites decided he wanted to do something very different with this toaster. For reasons best known to himself, he decided he wanted to make a toaster from scratch. So imagine a design student clad only in his underpants with a screwdriver. <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine, although once you've started imagining, you may find it hard to stop. <laughs> he wanted to do this as a design project. Um, so the first thing he did was to buy this toaster and to take it apart to see how it worked. And he got a bit of a surprise. It turns out if you take a toaster apart, you will discover that even this simple bottom-of-the-range toaster is more complicated than you might think. It, it has over 400 components and subcomponents, all sorts of different uh, uh, materials involved. So there's copper, there's uh, nickel, there's steel, there's plastic. Um, plastic's very important. It creates the, the beautiful sleek toaster casing. It also prevents you getting electrocuted. And Thomas decided he was undaunted by this. He said, well, I'd better just go and get the raw materials. And I'll start with iron. And I know Australia is a great commodity exporter, but in Britain, we're really a post-industrial society. We, we only make costume dramas and bad banking products. <laughs> and... Um, so there aren't any iron mines in, in the country, but Thomas found a museum of iron mining in an old disused iron mine, and he called them up, and he said, yeah, yeah, um, yeah I'm a design student, yeah, I'm trying to make a toaster, yeah. can I come down? And they said, yeah, sure, fine. So he took the train down to Wales, to, to this iron mining museum, and they immediately discovered there'd been a misunderstanding, that on the phone, they thought it said, I'm a design student, I'm trying to make a poster. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, makes a lot more sense. <laughs> it was all smoothed out, and they said, okay, fine, you want to make a toaster? That's fine. You want some iron ore? No problem. We'll give you a suitcase full of iron ore. <laughs> and he took the suitcase full of iron ore, and he, he took it back to London to begin the very simple process of turning the iron ore into iron. Now... This is not necessarily an easy thing to do. So this is, a, this is a dustbin, and it's full of barbecue coals and iron ore. And you might be wondering what the thing is that's poked in the back. Now, back in the day, what we would have done is these, we'd have these huge leather bellows, and you'd pump air over the coals to increase the flow of oxygen to get them to, to burn more intensely. Now, we don't need to bother with any of that. This is the 21st century. So Thomas just rammed a leaf blower into his dustbin. <laughs> switched it on, the air's flowing, and uh, don't try this at home, by the way. Um, partly because it's dangerous. Also, because it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. 
Uh, but Thomas was completely undaunted. He did his research and he discovered a recently patented method of smelting iron in a microwave. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the details. I want to encourage you. I just want to say, look, it's the second microwave. We're, we don't need to talk about what happened to the first one, okay? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, hang on, what happened to the dream, Thomas? The dream of, of the design student in his underpants with a screwdriver. He's already used a leaf blower and a microwave, and these are more expensive more modern and more complicated technologies than the toaster he's trying to make. And, and I confronted him about this, and he said, well, look, Tim, I, I realized it, it was basically just me by myself, naked in a forest somewhere. I could spend my whole life trying to make a toaster, and I wouldn't get anywhere, nowhere at all. So, so I had to make these shortcuts. So he, he got nickel by buying 99.9% nickel commemorative Canadian dollars on eBay. How difficult is that? Um, the mica he did dig out of the ground, the oil, you know, plastic comes from oil, right? Where does oil come from? BP. Yeah, they've got loads of it. Spill it everywhere. So he phoned BP and he said, yeah, so look, yeah, I'm a design student. I'm trying to make a toaster. Um, I need some crude oil. Uh, can, I, can I come to an offshore oil rig? I'll bring my own jug. And they said no, for some reason. So uptight. And then he realized you can make plastic from potato starch as long as it doesn't get eaten by hungry snails. And unfortunately, it was eaten by hungry snails. So in the end, he got his plastic by going to a plastic recycling facility and getting some recycled plastic. So he's made shortcut after shortcut after shortcut. And the truth is, I don't want to accuse him of being lazy. Because this wasn't an easy project. If you look at all the different objects he had to use to make his toaster. That's the toast in the foreground, by the way. Remember, this toaster, you can buy a toaster that works perfectly well for less than an hour of badly paid work. Thomas Thwaites spent well over 1,200 Australian dollars. More than nine months. He's not a lazy guy. And in the end, he produced... Well, I'll show you in a minute, but... Sometimes, it was my daughter's birthday recently, and she asked me to bake her a cake. Um, in the shape of a Dalmatian, actually. And imagine that she had asked me to, to bake a cake, not in the shape of a Dalmatian, but in the shape of a toaster. And imagine that I had been paralytically drunk. <laughs> and the question you're probably asking yourselves is, does it make toast? And Thomas told me, it, it warms bread when I plug it into a car battery. But I'm not sure what will happen when I plug it into the mains. In the end, he summoned up his courage. He had a couple of drinks with some friends, I think. They plugged it into the mains, and the toaster immediately burst into flames, which Thomas recorded, I think rather wonderfully, as a partial success. Now... I'm arguing we should make mistakes. I don't mean to say that the toaster project was a failure. It was clearly a failure as a toaster. But Thomas Thwaites wasn't trying to make a toaster. Thomas Thwaites was trying to make art. And he succeeded. So that's not why I'm talking about the toaster project. The reason I'm talking about the toaster project is because of what it tells us about the world we live in about the unbelievably complex economic system that we've built around ourselves and the political system and the social system that's 
completely inextricably intertwined with it, it's hugely complex. And it's not just the complexity in a single object that mysteriously appears in the shops. And there's, there's nobody in the world who really understands exactly how it all gets there. The whole process of producing this toaster is distributed. Yeah, the electronics are made in, in Taiwan. The copper comes from the Chiquicamata mine in Chile. And they don't know whether it's going to make bullets or toasters. They've no idea. They don't need to know. Somehow it all comes together and becomes the toaster. And it's not just the complexity of the toaster. It's not even the complexity of the supply chains. It's the sheer quantity of products and services that are available. And we don't really know how many. Um, but there's some guys at McKinsey who've made an educated guess. I would say in Sydney, the number of different products and services, distinct products and services available, if you were to count them, one a second, it would take you 417 years. There are about 10 billion products and services, many of them far more complex than the toaster, millions more being developed and brought to market every month. This is a system that we don't understand. Now, back in the day, when I was a bit of a free market guy, I used to think about that kind of thing, the toaster, and I used to think, isn't the market amazing? You cannot possibly make this thing by yourself. And yet, for less than an hour's badly paid labor, you can have it. And that is the miracle that the market produces. And you know, I, th that's still true. I mean, when markets work, they don't always work. I don't know if you've noticed. They don't always work. But when they work, they do do amazing things. But I, s I see things a bit differently now. And what's changed is uh, I've noticed something. You know, I'm 39. I, maybe I should have noticed it earlier. I noticed the world isn't perfect. We've got a few problems. We've got environmental problems, water shortages, climate change. We've got political problems, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, we, we've got educational problems, innovation problems. There's some small problems in the banking system. We've got problems, and they need fixing. And not only that, anybody who goes into the world and says, I want to make a difference to the world. I want to make a little dent in the universe. I just want to make things a little bit better. Whether you're going into a charity, you're going into politics, you're designing some new product, you're setting up your own business, you're just trying to make a difference. To solve any of these problems, what it means is to take action in the world of the toaster, in a world that we don't understand, that is too complex for any human mind to grasp. And that means to take action is to make mistakes. And I think we need to take more action, and that means we need to make more mistakes. And I want to talk today about what that means and why that's such a challenge. Because very often, when you, when you talk about complexity, there are two very common responses. One, I think, is very, uh, very normal, very human. And that's to say, well, gosh, um, it all seems a bit hard. I think I'll just stay in my armchair watching the telly. And that's a shame, because I think we're giving up something very important when you give up our agency in the face of this complexity. But it's completely understandable. And there's a second response. And this is the response that says, yeah, it's not that hard. If you knew what I knew, if you read all the books I'd read, talked to the people I'd talked to, had the expertise I have, you wouldn't think it was complex. It's basically common sense. You just need to sort this out. And I, I know what needs sorting out, and I can do it. And this is unusual behavior, but we see it very strongly in certain professions, doctors, lawyers, politicians, chief executives of businesses, very concentrated in those professions. Um, it's, almost, it's, it's an illusion of the ability to make decisions in a complex world and to think that you're not making mistakes and to think that, therefore, you don't need a second opinion, you don't need evidence, you don't need to go back and check whether you got things right. You can just charge on. It's like sort of the hit and run of policy making. Just charge through the world, making mistakes, 
but never acknowledging to yourself that that's what you've actually done. Never going back to check, never facing them, never fixing them. And that's very common in, in people who have power. And I think that they need, sure, to keep taking action, but also to face up to the mistakes they inevitably will make along the way. Now, let me talk about one particular type of mistake that I think is extremely productive. It was still very curiously resistant to it. This is the experiment. Now, I know it might sound strange to call an experiment a mistake, but if you think about how an experiment works, what, you, what you're doing, let's say Google put up a, web, a website, and they do this all the time. They put up a website, and depending on completely random variables, you might see website A or website B, and they call it A-B testing. And website B is just a little bit different to website A. Now, one of these websites was a mistake. One of them leads to higher customer satisfaction, more repeat visits to Google, more clicks on adverts, more money for Google, and one of them leads to less of that. And the basic insight of the experiment is you don't know which one. So you have to deliberately make the mistake, acknowledge that you don't know, and find out. And that's fine. And it really doesn't sound like a big deal. Until you think about doing that with human lives, which is exactly what we do in clinical trials which are one of the most important methodological advances of the 20th century. And what is a clinical trial but a deliberate, controlled mistake with the express aim of finding out what the mistake actually is so you can fix it in future? You find a bunch of people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, and you give half of them the best possible treatment that you can find, and you give the other half maybe nothing, maybe sugar pills, or maybe some crazy untried thing, you have no idea whether it will work. And with the benefit of hindsight, you will know for sure, for sure, that half of those people were treated in a mistaken way. Half of those people got a rough deal. The trouble is, you don't know before you start which half. That's why you have to run the trial. And that, maybe that doesn't sound such a, such a problem. Maybe that sounds obvious. Yeah, sure, of course you have to run randomized trials. But the uncomfortable fact is, first, that the medical profession have been incredibly resistant to this. And they continue to be, some continue to be very resistant to this because of the ethical issues, but also because of that supreme confidence that they actually already know what works. <laughs> Why would you make this deliberate mistake when we know what works already. And the second problem is, we could be using the same techniques far more widely. We could be using randomized trials in schools to understand how best to help different kinds of children learn to read, learn to do maths. We could be using them to understand how to police the metro. We just finished a randomized trial in London of where the police should stand in the London underground and how often they should move on. And it's improved the effectiveness of policing. But of course, to do this kind of thing, you have to commit these deliberate mistakes. And there is tremendous resistance to doing that. Politicians hate doing that because they know that half the time they're going to prove themselves wrong. They're going to prove that they made a mistake before. One of the great heroes of, uh, of evidence-based medicine is a guy called Archie Cochran. Archie died in the late 1970s. He was a Scottish doctor, and he became one of the world's great epidemiologists. Uh, he completely revolutionized how the British National Health Service thought about evidence-based medicine and campaigned worldwide for doctors to take randomized trials more seriously, to take their own knowledge less seriously, to give themselves a bit less respect, and to acknowledge that actually by making these mistakes, these deliberate controlled mistakes, they could learn something. And after he died, um, the Cochrane collaboration was set up in his memory. And this is a global network of doctors and epidemiologists putting together the very best evidence from all of these randomized trials, all of these people who were given the wrong treatments deliberately so we could find out what worked and learn. Anybody can download it from the Cochrane collaboration. A great man. He, um, he once grumbled, I think, lightheartedly that he was going to die without a knighthood, and he did die without a knighthood, despite the fact I think he's one of the greatest Brits who ever lived. 
And there was a reason he died without knighthood. It's because he annoyed people a lot. He annoyed people a lot because he understood that is what it takes to force people to acknowledge that they might be making a mistake right now and they're in a process of complete denial, a state of total denial. An example. Archie became interested in the idea that um, after a heart attack, maybe instead of being taken care of in a specialized cardiac wing of a hospital, which is what was happening, maybe people should just go home. They could put their feet up, they'd be free from risk of infection. Of course, they wouldn't get any specialist care. Still, maybe it was worth thinking about. All his colleagues who were cardiac surgeons thought it wasn't worth thinking about. It was unthinkable. It was unethical. You could not possibly deliberately make this mistake, deliberately send people home to die to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. And they shut his trial down. And then he managed to get it set up in another city. And he ran the trial. And after a short while, he gathered together all the power brokers, all the cardiac surgeons in a room. And he said, well, gentlemen, I've, um, I've got the preliminary data here. Handed out the paper with the, with the tables. And it, it's really too early to be sure but I thought you ought to know, these patients are safer in hospital. You were right. There was a huge outcry. Doctors pounding the tables, pointing their fingers. We always said you were unethical. We always said you were dangerous. We said you would kill people, and you are killing people, and you have to shut the trial down at once. And Archie let them talk. And then he said, that's very interesting, because when I gave you the results, I swapped the two columns in the table. Your hospitals are killing people, and they're safer at home. Do you want to shut the trial down now, or should we keep going and be sure? Tumbleweed blew through the room. <laughs> but Archie understood but sometimes that's what it takes. So that's one way of making mistakes, deliberate, controlled mistakes that we still don't use enough. And there's still tremendous institutional resistance to it. So it, that it took a, a hero like Archie Cochran to make it catch on. But there are many other kinds of mistakes that I think can be very productive. It's not just about this highly formalized system of experimentation, although that, that is amazing. Um, it is very powerful. It can often be a far more informal process of just throwing out some different ideas, trying something new. And why, don't we, why don't we launch this product? Um, why, do, why doesn't our charity try to raise funds in, in, in this way? Maybe this policy would reduce recidivism, or, or, or maybe this policy uh, would increase how much children uh, learn in maths classes. Uh, just these crazy ideas, these dangerous ideas, these ideas that look like they're probably mistakes. And one of the reasons they look like they're probably mistakes is because everybody else in the room is saying, well, no, no that's not the way we do things. We've, we know our strategy, we know our policy, we know the research, you're suggesting something different, and um, that's probably a mistake. And it's very hard to be the person who speaks up and says, well, let's try. Because the truth is, you know what, it probably is a mistake. It probably is the wrong thing to do. Most new ideas are bad ideas. But isn't it worth finding out? But that can be really hard. I want to talk to you about the research of a psychologist called Solomon Ash. But before I talk about the research, I, I want to show you something rather wonderful. I recently discovered that Solomon Ash, 50 years ago, um, collaborated with Candid Camera. Uh, and I, I'm going to show you a, a short video. I apologize, it's 50 years old. The quality isn't very good. It's only a couple of minutes, and, and I think you'll find it worthwhile. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see 
how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, He looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. Now we try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. You're going to see a fellow who uh, fights a little bit to withstand the group pressure now. He'll express his discomfort in the way he looks and the way he uh, wiggles a little bit, but watch. He's right in a groove now. The elevator hasn't budged, but the doors open a moment later, and this we find. <laughs> He's very unhappy. You'll see him. He doesn't know whether to go inside and face front or outside and face back. <laughs> but he's one of the group now. Here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> see if we can use now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good now in a moment on Charlie's signal everybody turns forward notice they take off their hats and now do you think we could reverse the procedure watch Solomon Ash was fascinated with the problem of conformity. His most famous experiment was conducted in the 1950s with a bunch of um, Stanford University undergraduates. They were all men. And he, he did this over and over and over again with slightly different conditions. But the, the basic idea was there were ten guys seated around a table. Solomon Ash would show them two cards. One card had three lines on, three different lengths, labeled A, B, C. The other card had a single line on. It was called the reference line. And the question was, which of the three lines, A, B, and C, is the same length as the reference line? And then he would go around and uh, turn to the first person. And the answer would be B. It's pretty obvious that the answer was B. It not, it's not that hard. Go to the first person. A. 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 Now, you saw the guy with the cigarette, the guy who just kept moving around, who kept fidgeting, who was just... You saw the stress of the first guy. He's looking at his watch. The person at the end of the line is starting to display this kind of behavior. They start to sweat. They mutter under their breath. They make jokes about how their eyes might be deceiving them. They're, they fidget. They, they look extremely stressed. Because everybody in the room is saying A, and the answer is B. And finally, you get to the guy at the end of the line. And very often, they would say, A. And of course, you know the punchline. Everybody in the room is an actor, except the schmuck at the end, who's on candid camera, effectively. The pressure of conformity is like that. Everybody's saying something, and it's wrong. And you, you're pretty sure it's wrong, but 
you're not going to... Either you think you must be wrong, you're not willing to make that mistake. Um, or even if you're pretty sure you're right, you're certainly not willing to expose yourself to all that social pressure. So when Solomon Ash repeated the experiment, slightly different. Again, they're all actors except for the last guy. The answer is still B. A, 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 B, A, 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 A. Now we get to the final guy. It turns out it's not a popularity contest. He doesn't want to be in the majority. He just doesn't want to be alone. And very often, people in that situation would say B. They knew to be the right answer, because at least there was somebody else saying that. Another variant of the experiment. A. A, 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 C. A, 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 A. Come to the guy at the end of the line. They would say B. They didn't even mind being the only person in the room speaking the truth. Because at least there was somebody else doing something different. And that permission to speak is very important. So it turns out there are two reasons when you're in a group decision-making situation. When you're a group of um, U.S. Army generals deciding on the strategy in Iraq, you're a cabinet full of politicians, you're a boardroom um, full of uh, corporate executives, there are two reasons why you should be willing to speak up and say something that might be wrong, willing to risk that mistake. The first reason is, maybe it's not a mistake. Maybe you're not wrong. And isn't it worth finding out? There's another reason. Even if it is a mistake, your willingness to make that mistake liberates other people to speak the truth. It can be valuable to, to be in an organization and to do nothing but talk nonsense. <laughs> as long as that creates a better conversation. Some of you may have been hired for your ability to do this. If so, well done. <laughs> so that's another reason to make mistakes, because it breaks the spell of conformity. I could talk about decision-making in armies. I could talk about decision-making in organizations or in politics. But I think the truth is it comes down to us. We don't make as many mistakes as we should because at a quite deep psychological level, we're not designed to be comfortable with making mistakes. It hurts. It costs us. Um, there's a thing called behavioral economics. It's kind of the love child of economics and psychology. And one of the first things that behavioral economists discovered was something called loss aversion. And loss aversion is a disproportionate anxiety about small, certain losses. And what loss aversion means is that people will sometimes go to extraordinary and rather unwise lengths to avoid locking in a loss. They'll, they'll double down. They, they, they will throw extra resources behind their bet on the stock market or the poker game or their business project or their policy that they're trying to sell to the electorate or their failing relationship, rather than say, you know what, it was a good try, it didn't work, it was a mistake, time to fix it, they go, no, that wasn't a mistake, and if we just keep making it harder and harder, eventually that'll come good. And sometimes it does, but very often it doesn't. Now, I, I could talk about research into poker players, I could talk about uh, how people make decisions on the stock market, but actually, my favorite example of this is the way people play game shows. Uh, and game shows are interesting to behavioral economists because they get played all over the world, the same formats, the same rules, quite a lot of money at stake, and you get to see people from all over just going through the same decisions over and over again. You can gather a lot of data on how people make these decisions. Now, um, one such game is deal or no deal. Anybody know deal or no deal? Yeah? It's made it to Australia. It started in Holland. Those of you who are, you know, you didn't go to the football, so you probably don't watch Deal or No Deal, so let me explain how it works. <laughs> deal or No Deal, it depends a bit on the country, but the basic idea is there are about two dozen boxes, 
and they contain this exponentially increasing amount of cash. So the first box has a, a cent in, or maybe five cents or ten cents, and there are quite a lot of boxes with a bit of money, you know, $125, $250, $500. And then right at the end, there are boxes with serious money and maybe a quarter of a million dollars or half a million dollars. In the original Dutch version of the game, um, the jackpot's 500,000 euros. I want to tell you about a particular player of the game in the Netherlands. And it's an extreme example of a statistically very common trait. His name was Frank. Now, Frank's starting to play the game. Now, the, the way this game works is you've got one of these boxes. You don't know how much money is in it. Nobody knows how much money is in it. Maybe it's half a million euros. Maybe it's one euro. All the other boxes are out in play, and you play by choosing boxes, and they're opened and discarded. And every time you open a box with two euros in, that's great news. It means you're not, you, don't have, you haven't got the two-euro box, which, of course, you don't, you don't want a two-euro prize. If you open a box with 125,000 euros in, that's bad news because it means you haven't got one of the big prizes. And every now and then, you get a call from this obnoxious uh, anonymous character called the banker. I think it's great that before the banking crisis, they had the foresight to make the banker this completely repugnant figure. <laughs> so he calls you on this big black Bakelite telephone and makes you a, an offer to walk away. He's going to buy your box and you're going to walk away from the game. And the banker doesn't know what's in your box either. But he can see what's, what's been out of play, what's been discarded. So can you. You can both reach your own conclusions. And so the important decision that the players have to make is, do you accept the banker's offer? Deal or no deal? And Frank had discarded a bunch of boxes. And he had five left. And one of them had half a million euros in. And the others had not a lot. So you can do the maths. The expected value of keeping to play is keeping on playing is a bit more than 100,000 euros. It's half a million plus change divided by five. So it, the average value of continuing to play is 100,000 euros, but it's extremely risky. The banker called Frank and said, I'll offer you 85,000 euros to walk away. And Frank said no. Now that's risky, but you wouldn't say that's the wrong decision. It's, it's all about his attitude to risk. Then, unfortunately, the very next box that Frank opened had half a million euros in. And the banker called him back and said, thanks for the bailout. My new offer is two and a half thousand euros. Now, Frank had to think about this offer. And the interesting thing about it, it was actually a more generous offer relative to what Frank had in his remaining boxes. If you, if you were interested in the 85,000 euros, you should be really interested in the 2,500 euros. But that's not what Frank was thinking. Frank was thinking two things. I hate the banker. <laughs> and I hate myself. Because I just made a really big mistake. And he said no. And the next offer the banker made was more than the fair value of continuing to play the game. Three boxes left. The banker's offer was basically, I will take away all your risk and I will pay you extra. And Frank said no. And the final offer, Frank was either going to walk away with 10 euros or 10,000 euros, and the banker offered 6,000 euros. And Frank said no. And Frank left the studio with 10 euros. <laughs> and that behavior is statistically typical because when people are playing deal or no deal, Immediately after they've made a choice they regret, they've, made a, they've experienced a loss, they start doing really stupid things. And I just want to ask you whether you think that's true only of deal or no deal players. <laughs> or whether we all have to think, of, look at ourselves and look at our mistakes and instead of just going crazy about them to say, yeah, uh, that was an interesting mistake. I learned something, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. I promised you I'd talk about Twyla Tharp. She gets up at half past five every morning, and um, she goes to the studio, she's 72 now. Um, so she now goes with a younger dancer, she used to just go by herself. And for three hours, they improvise, 
trying to find new dance moves, new movements, new sequences of movement, new combinations that nobody has ever done before, something completely new, something creative, something exciting, that flash of inspiration. And Twyla says, if in three hours, they videotape everything, if in three hours you can get 30 seconds of usable material, that's a good day. Think about the failure to success ratio of that. It's, it's 1 to 360 on a good day. Because Twyla says, you know, failures are great. Private failures are great. The mistakes you make by yourself in your own room when nobody is watching, they're the best kind of failures of all because you learn something and you get on with it. But of course, as Twyla was to discover, when you are trying to do something really new, really creative, really big, sometimes you don't get to have your failure in private. Sometimes it becomes public. I think Twyla had already got two big things right. One is she had tried to do something new. She was 62 at the time. She was at the peak of her career. She could just have cruised into retirement just repeating herself. But she wanted to try and create something new, even though it was a disaster. And the second thing she got right is she opened in Chicago. She knew it might not work. She wanted to give herself a bit of time to fix it. Now, the truth is, it was so bad and there was so little time, it probably wasn't going to work, but at least she'd given herself a chance. At least she'd acknowledged, maybe this won't be perfect. But all, the, all that said, it would have been easy for her, given where she was in her career, to just say, you know what, forget the critics in Chicago, they don't know anything. I'm Twyla Tharp. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to change a thing. I'm going to London, it's going to, to New York. Sorry, jet lag. I'm going to New York. I'm going to Broadway, it's going to be great. But instead, she got some advice. She sat down on the Saturday morning after that, uh, that first opening with all the newspaper reviews, a couple of glasses of orange juice and some coffee, and her friend, Jennifer Tipton, who was a lighting designer, who'd been with her for decades, advising her, provoking her. And Jennifer looked at all the reviews... And she looked Twyla in the eyes and she said, you know they're right. And it's a really difficult thing to say. And it's a really difficult thing to hear. So then Twyla asked her manager, who was also her son, to take all the reviews and she said, take all the poison out of them. Which, which is interesting because I've read the reviews. They're harsh, but they're fair. And there is no poison they're not nasty. They're not cruel. They just say it's a terrible show. But she's a human being. They felt poisonous. She said to her son, just read all the reviews. Take all the poison out of them. Take the substantive criticism. Put it on a spreadsheet. Tell me where they all agree. Tell me what I need to fix. And then she got on with fixing it. In really the most incredibly difficult circumstances... Her investors were asking where their $8 million were, uh, was, that her cast had lost faith in her. Uh, you know, it, it was amazing she was still in charge of this thing, but she just got to work. She made radical changes. She changed the story. She changed the orders of the dance. She changed the staging. She moved the band off stage. They were causing a distraction. The band didn't like that. She was sacking dancers. She was dealing with all these bruised egos, all these careers she was ruining. But she got it done. And then she took her play and she went to Broadway. And every critic in broad on Broadway was waiting for this colossal turkey to flap into town so they could roast it. And it opened. And the reviews came out. And the New York Times said, this is a shimmering portrait of an American generation. Another reviewer said, it's a blast. Another one said, it's in a different league. Another one was just trying to explain the, the amazing achievement of getting these superb ballet dancers and these superb musicians to work together and the scale of Twyla Tharp's achievement. And it ran for years, and it won a Tony Award for Billy Joel, and it won a Tony Award for Twyla Tharp. And my favorite review was by a reviewer called Michael Phillips, who'd written one of the harshest reviews in Chicago, the one that had been syndicated, that had been published in New York. And he had been brought down by the New York Press to write a special guest review of the revised piece. And he wrote this review, and he talked about everything that had changed and how transformed the show was. And he asked a beautiful little simple question. 
How did this happen? Life is about making mistakes. And life is also about staring them squarely in the face and fixing them. And I don't want to pretend that it's going to be easy. One last little story. Two Japanese mathematicians after the war, young guys, worked together on something called the Taniyama Shimura conjecture. They were called Yutaka Taniyama and Gora Shimura. And it was this amazing piece of hyperbolic geometry. And all the mathematicians who saw it, admired it, huge edifices of mathematics were built on this thing. Um, it was discovered that if you could prove it, you'd also prove Fermat's last theorem. It's kind of like a footnote. Um, so it was an amazing thing. But they could never prove it. It was always a conjecture. It was always something that seemed plausible. It seemed to be true, but they could never quite get there. And in 1952, just before his 30th birthday, Yutaka Taniyama killed himself. And decades later, the Taniyama Shimura conjecture was proved. It was true. And Fermat's last theorem was proved. That's the footnote. And of course, there's this huge excitement because Fermat's last theorem had been proved. And somebody tracked down Goro Shimura, who was by, by then an old man. And they asked him about his, his friend with whom he'd done this amazing thing. They said, what was he like? What was Yutaka Tanayama like? And Shimura said, he was not a very careful person as a mathematician. He made a lot of mistakes. But he made mistakes in a good direction. I tried to copy him. But I realized it's very difficult to make good mistakes. Thank you very much. have a short time for some questions um, uh, from you. So if you'd like to make your way uh, to the microphones, if you have a question for Tim, um, we can take a handful. Um, I might start off by asking Tim, from all of your thinking about these issues, about success, failure, mistakes, what is it that you've found out that has been uh, most useful to you in your real life? I think it's been the realisation that um, it's okay to make a lot of small mistakes. And you've just got to get over yourself when you do that. Um, one of the things that I, I, I did fairly recently was uh, move cities with my wife and family. And we just beat ourselves up every week about whether this was going to be the right decision or not. And in the end, I realized, actually, that's not the question. We don't know whether it's going to be the right decision. The question was, was it survivable? If we moved to the wrong city uh, and sent our kids to the wrong school and we, it turned out we made a mistake, could we reverse it? Could we learn from the mistake? Could we fix it? Could we move back? And we said, well, yeah, if we, if we get it right, if we do it in the right way, if we structure the decision in the right way and it's a mistake, we can fix it. And so we moved. Uh, and I think it's gone well. That was, that was a real revolution in the way I thought about these things. We'll go to here. Uh, that was a great talk. Thanks very much. Um, I guess my question is, some failures are so public and so damaging to people that they can't take the kind of risks that are necessary. So what kind of policies could a nation or a society put in place to reduce the cost of public failure rather than private failure? I think it's a wonderful question. So, so three quick thoughts. One is... Politicians themselves, I think, should try to communicate better about uncertainty and to say, look, um, we've got some ideas about fixing the education system. Um, we've got reasons to believe that they're good ideas, but nothing's ever certain. We're going to, we're going to get people to participate in pilots. Everything's going to be transparent. Everyone's going to know what's going on. 
and we're going to find out. And the ideas that work, we'll roll out. And the ideas that don't work, we're going to stop. And don't come blaming us for a U-turn, because that was always the plan. So it's partly about communication. I think the second thing is we, as voters, have got to grow up a bit about whether it's okay to fail. And I know our politicians don't make it easy for us, but you know, we could at least try and show an interest in whether somebody acted in good faith, looked at the best evidence and, and, and did their best, and shut something down when it failed, which is a hugely admirable thing to do and a really ballsy thing to do. It's much easier just to keep going and say, no, there's no problem. And a third thing, particularly about the banking system, um, some of you may be coming to talk about letting banks fail. We need to structure the banking system to make failure less dangerous. We're still thinking about how to make failure less likely. Failure is going to happen. We need to think about how to make it less dangerous. And there are lots of things we could do about that, but we've got to take some other questions. So thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, hi. Um, great, great talk, Tim. I it was following on from what your response just then. I guess you think about mistakes and you think about magnitudes um, and you think of the GFC as a classic big mistake, right? Uh, so, and if you think about innovation and risk-taking, is I think that's what you're sort of suggesting we should sort of do. You know, you could see that as a, that, that could be thought of just as like a uh, someone trying to work out the best solar panel there's some Goldman Sachs innovative guys trying to work out, work out the best financial innovation tool. Problem is it pretty much risks the world in terms of the financial system. So I guess is it, is it more about the magnitude of the mistakes as well? Because, or that's, that's inevitable? Is this, is, this, is, is this part of this complex system we're trying to, so, so we need trying to, to understand? Think, so we need to think really hard about the, the distribution of risk and reward. And there are some kinds of mistakes or some kinds of experiments, rather, where the, the mistakes are really cheap and the potential gains are huge. So if you're working uh, on a new medical uh, treatment, you can fail again and again and again and again in the laboratory. It's going to cost a few hundred thousand, a few million, whatever. And then if you finally come up with the cure, that's worth a tremendous amount. And there are examples anywhere from... Uh, the Spitfire, which is the plane that defeated Adolf Hitler, to the development of the internet. In those contexts, you need to be extremely relaxed about very, very high failure rates. That's fine. And then there are other technologies. Nuclear power is one. Finance is another. Uh, I talk about the parallels between the two quite a lot in my book, where um, you need to have a very low tolerance for mistakes. And actually, you need to devote a lot more attention to making the mistakes happen early, almost in controlled conditions, before they do any damage. So you, you're absolutely right. It really depends on the context. But mistakes will happen. It's all about the right way to foster the right kind of mistakes and the, the right way to fix them at the right stage. Down here. Um, I think my question is related to the previous turn. You may have just answered it. But um, all the examples you've given have when there's been a pilot project phase. But what do you do where there's a binomial choice, which requires like a lot of commitment of resources and time, and you do make a mistake? How do you then justify that to the people who then are adversely affected um, of saying that you made a mistake as that just uh, escaping accountability? And what do you do in those big situations where you only have a binomial choice and no pilot phase? So, yeah, it, it's, it's all systems go or it's nothing, and there's no room to learn. Uh, what I would say is very few decisions in life are really like that. You can usually look at these choices and structure them in a way that you can find out more. Uh, you've, you've got benchmarks, you've got tests, you've got previous evidence, and there are also points where you just have to pull the plug, even if a tremendous amount of money and, and resource has been spent. So the more the problem is like that, the more difficult this experimental trial and error approach becomes. But I think we still need to think of it in that way. And an example is the example I just talked about, um, moving to a different city. You know, you either move or you don't move. But you can still think about what do we need to learn? Can we make that choice in a way that's partially reversible? And at, at what point are we going to decide whether to keep going or whether to move back? Last question, up the back. Um, I agree with a lot of things you said, and especially the fact that if you don't make, if, you, if you're not comfortable making mistakes, it really does stop us from having honest conversations. Have you found in your research 
a model or a time period or a cultural group which is a lot more comfortable in making mistakes and what are the lessons you know how do we replicate that so there are there are obvious examples um silicon valley is the very fashionable one and i'm fascinated by the distinction between the west coast of america where they they all say yeah fail faster uh, double your failure rate in the east coast where they just talk about too big to fail and i think about which of these two economies has contributed more to the world recently um <laughs> but i i would say i think we we need to be careful about uh, this sort of cultural uh, generalization people often say for instance oh you know the japanese for instance are very uh, failure averse um that is sometimes true it's also partly about how you define failure what counts as a failure in other people's eyes and that can be redefined there's very interesting research by carol dweck who's an educational psychologist into the you know, the willingness to make mistakes of children and she finds that okay japanese have this reputation for being failure averse but japanese children are very happy to fail they'll go up to the blackboard and they'll be asked by the teacher to try and solve a sum and they will they'll be there for 20 minutes failing and failing and failing with their classmates contributing ideas and everybody discussing and everybody learning so i i would be careful about being too deterministic about this and just saying well you know these guys can fail and these people can't and what can you do about that because it's always a little bit more complex than you think just like the toaster <laughs> Thank you very much to Tim for a wonderful talk. Uh thank you to you for coming along. Uh stay tuned. We'll be abolishing private schools very soon in this same venue. Um and I look forward to seeing you there or elsewhere over the weekend. Thanks very much.